Welcome to the podcast from the Temple. I'm Rabbi Peter Berg. And I'm Rabbi Lauren Filson Lapidus. This episode is brought to you by the Temple, Atlanta's oldest and youngest synagogue. Happy New Year, Peter. Happy New Year. It is great to start a new year. I think uh, everybody says, let's take 2020 and, and, and uh, put it behind us and look to 2021. Uh, yeah, I think I, people thought it was going to change the minute that the year changed, like all of a sudden life would be different. And uh, we're six days in and uh, yeah, we're not there yet. Yeah. And New Year's Eve was exactly the same as uh, every day of the last year, which is uh, sit home, make food, eat it and go to bed. <laughs> yeah, we did some form of that. We um, uh, we cooked food this year for the first time. Um, we actually um, cooked collard greens. So we learned that's one of the, we knew about the black eyed peas, but the collard greens we learned last year are a traditional New Year's food. And um, I have this great new cookbook um, from the cafe at the Smithsonian Museum of African American History. And so I cooked the collard greens recipe and it got mixed reviews. The adults liked it. The kids were not into it. <laughs> that sounds about right. Well, uh, uh, the good news is, as opposed to talking about cooking at home, um, uh, our podcast today is about, in part, the hospitality industry. And pivot. Yeah, <laughs> we do. We, we, we learn to pivot, right? That was, that was a slick, uh, that was a pro-rabbi move right there. <laughs> Go back to what you were doing. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm excited because... Um, uh, you know, we don't, we haven't been thinking about the hospitality industry because we're home making our own stuff. But uh, uh, one of our own temple members uh, is a giant in the, in the hospitality industry. And we're going to have a chance to hear from him today. Well, here is a wonderful interview with Mike Levin, who is a temple member and so many other things that you're going to hear about. So please enjoy. <music> I'm so excited, Lauren, to uh, welcome our guest today, Mike Levin, who, uh, if, I, if I read his bio and his resume, um, we would be here until Tisha B'Av, as they say. He has done so many incredible things in his work life, um, uh, in his uh, philanthropic life, um, uh, and um, he actually just wrote a book about it, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But uh, Mike, before we begin, I actually want to say thank you to you for being um, a friend, uh, for being a mentor to me, uh, for being someone um, who uh, whose trust uh, means so much to me. Uh, we first met early on in the search process when I first came to the temple. And actually, not everybody knows that one of your closest childhood friends is our rabbi, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, but uh, well, first of all, welcome, Mike. Glad you're here. So glad to have you. I'm going to tell that story. Do you want me to tell that story? Yeah, it's a great. Yeah, it's a great. I think that's really kind of interesting, actually. Okay, go for it. Well, uh, thank you anyway, Peter. I know I, I don't want to take all the time and just talking about all the things about my life, but uh, I grew up in Boston, uh, and uh, I used to go to the YMHA there, and. Uh, uh, one of the people when I after you were after you played basketball you went down to the uh, men's locker room and uh, they would give you a towel for 10 cents to take a shower <laughs> and the person that gave me a towel and my 10 cents which was a lot of money when you used to get 42 cents an hour to work or 10 cents a line to set up pins in the bowling alley 
uh, you give me a towel, and the person giving you the towel is a fellow by the name of Arnold Shear, S-H-E-R. And Arnold Shear and I became friendly over the years uh, in other places because we ended up being counselors together at Camp, Te at first at Avoda, Camp Avoda in, in uh, Massachusetts, and then in, at Camp Tevia in uh, New Hampshire. And uh, we became friendly over the years. He went to Williams, I went to Tufts. And then uh, we also used to work at the Nefty convention uh, that happened after the summer at, at Camp Tevia. And I ran the kitchen and I ran the waterfront. So, uh, and then he got friendly with the rabbis, including some very famous rabbis in the reform movement at that time. And he went to rabbinical school and he became a rabbi. And lo and behold, he ended up at Bridgeport, Connecticut many years. And then he became the placement director for the reform movement. And anytime there was somebody looking for a rabbi. So I hadn't spoken to him for a couple of years and I'm sitting in my house one day and he calls up and he said, listen, are you doing anything next Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever it is? And I said, why, why? He said, well, we're interviewing a, a rabbi by the name of Peter Berg. You don't know him? I said, of course not, I don't know him. He said, he's coming for the temple as a candidate. I was not on the search committee. No one ever asked me to be on the search committee. And uh, uh, I said, well, I'm not on the search committee. He says, no, 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 I want you to tell him everything you know about the temple and see if you convince him that it's a job he ought to take. <laughs> So I, uh, they set up an appointment for me <laughs> to meet him. And I met you, I met Peter in a tiny single room. I could barely hold the two of us yeah. in the Hyatt Hotel downtown. Yeah. My first thought was what kind of a search committee puts a candidate they want in a tiny single room? Where's the big suite here? So I walk in, there was barely enough room for us to sit and talk. And, and I told, I, I don't want to, too much time to go into all the detail of it, but I, I, I think I had an impact on, on Peter to say that this is probably the best opportunity you're going to have. This is a great temple in a great location. It's had a great history and it has a wonderful future. And uh, I told him about, you know, the things I liked, the things I didn't like. I told him about uh, the previous rabbi, the, 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 the rabbi before the rabbi. A little bit of the history and uh, uh, I think I was an Im I don't think I won't take the credit for him taking the job uh, <laughs> I influenced him taking the job so absolutely, absolutely. and I'm sure they I'm sure they whispered in your ear what do you think of this bird guys so whatever you said thank you yeah. <laughs> you know, interesting. they never asked me no one no one only <laughs> was the only person no one on the search committee I don't think anybody knew I don't think well, it, it sounds though like you still managed to influence the course of events, which yeah. is uh, Isn't amazing. Good. I mean, yeah. Well, I, Adi Sheer, Adi Sheer is a spectacular guy. I yeah. mean, I've known him. He was married to a woman. Uh, I know his kids. I've been to his life cycle events. He's still going. He's retired now. He lives in in uh, in uh, up in the Berkshires. Uh, and uh, we talk about this whenever we talk. I always talk about the Peter Berg. The Petersburg experience in the tiny single room at the house. It's a great segue into you know influencing the course of, of future events and um, you know things that really benefit um, benefit the Jewish community. Petersburg at the temple is definitely one of them, and um, you in your retirement uh, really have focused in on um, your Jewish future and this 
wonderful, the, the Jewish Future Pledge and all of the ways that it can benefit the community. So I imagine that a lot of the people listening have not had uh, the benefit of hearing about this before. So share a little bit about what led you to, to create this pledge and, and what it could mean for, for the Jewish community. Well, thanks, Rabbi. Here's what happened. I mean, I, I, I'm 83 now and I've been involved Jewishly as a young person and Jewishly in the community since about 1985, really. So it's about uh, 36 years or so where I've been very, very active in the Jewish world. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in Aspen, Colorado in the summer and I went to a lecture at the Jewish Community Center, which is a combined Chabad and Jewish Community Center there. And the speaker was uh, uh, David Horowitz, the editor of the Times of Israel magazine. And during the course of that speech, he gave his concern about the future of the Jewish people and the state of Israel, uh, particularly from a diaspora and particularly from North America, which at that time was 90% of the diaspora. And the reason he was worried about it is because of the wealth transfer that's going to go on in, in, from this generation to the next generation. And he was concerned was that how with the next generation with all of the things that are going on uh, in the non-Orthodox environment in, in particular, where young people are leaving Judaism, uh, Israel, is, uh, they're involved in campus activities which are anti-Israel, things of that kind. Uh, the commitment is not quite the same. And, and plus with the interfaith scenario that's going on, how many of these kids will be brought up Jewishly? How many will have the same sense to, of support? And I, I never did anything with it, but it was very concerning to me. And then a couple of years later, I was in Aspen again in the summer and Mark Silverman, who was the, uh, the lay head of the Jewish Federation of Atlanta at the time, was in the same hotel with me. And he, uh, he said, can I meet you for breakfast? And I said, what, I've already made my pledge. Why do, you want to, uh, why do you want to have breakfast? So he said, no, I want to talk to you about something else. And, and then we, we sat down and we, we had a meeting. And he said, look, I want you to do something for the Jewish Foundation. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you, know, you do have a small donor advice fund, but I'd like you to increase the donor advice fund uh, so, that, so that we can be assured that there will be some money there after you. So I said, gee, I never thought about that. And, and I, I, I said, okay, I'll start with three small funds, one for each one of my sons. My sons are adults. They're 54, 53 this week and 50. So uh, I said, I, I set up a fund for each one of those. And I took a small amount of money and set up, I would set up three funds. But when I came home, I talked to Andrea, my wife, and I said, I'm setting up these funds. And she said, she said, well, she says, how do you know after we're gone that they'll spend the money Jewishly? Because in a donor advised fund, it doesn't make, as long as it's a 501c3, you can spend the money. It doesn't have to be Jewish. So I said, I don't know. I said, I never thought about it. But then the bell went off in my head about what David Horowitz said a couple of years ago, and that's exactly the problem. And then I, I, I came up with this idea of, of a Buffett kind of thing about why can't Jews who are leaving money for charity uh, ensure that a portion of that money, 50% or more, go to charity, go to Jewish events, Jewish things, for the state of, or for the state of Israel, either one. And I didn't think I was the most brilliant guy in the world, so I went to talk to Bernie Marcus and said, am I stupid or can we do this kind of thing? And he said, I love the idea, go do it. 
but she didn't give me any money to do it. I had to do it myself. <laughs> and and, uh, uh, and uh, I said, okay. So I, 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 I put it together. I, I, uh, I did the legal work. I had uh, uh, trademarks done. Uh, I had my own 501c3, it's called the Jewish Future Pledge. There's a wonderful website called jewishfuturepledge.org, which tells the story, has my, my sons on it, my wife on it, uh, lots of interviews and lots of messages from everybody that signed this pledge. And now it's evolved where I have three people working for me, uh, working full time and uh, on this situation. And we have a brand extension called the Jewish Youth Pledge, which we're testing at NCSY and BBYO. And, uh, uh, and that's going very favorably. And we're, we're starting a really, uh, we went in about a year and a half. And, uh, and we're working with a big partnership with JFNA uh, we're working on a situation, thanks to Peter, to talk to some rabbis mm -hmm. around the country on it. Uh, Peter's written a letter about it. Uh, I made some presentation, I made a presentation at Temple Board. Uh, what are some of the things you're hearing in response? Tell us about, um, like when you talk to your friends or you talk to, to people who, for whom it had never occurred to them, what, what kinds of things are you hearing? Well, th this is really amazing. There's, there's probably close to $100 billion in donor-advised funds in North America under Jewish ownership, believe it or not. Amazing. And I have yet to meet the first person who, at, at the donor-advised fund, if something happened to that person and their spouse, that there's an instruction that's given about what to do with the money in the donor-advised funds. So when we talk about that, we, we're working with Morgan Stanley and we're working with some other, other uh, with the Federation to get certain language that one can write in a legacy letter or whatever. And, 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 and we've, we're asking people to talk to their children about it, which I have done. And it, it's, it's a phenomenal experience because they're now involved in giving money Jewishly. In fact, I just had a conversation today with, uh, uh, with one of my sons about this again. And, and but some of the, the things that I found out is that Many of the foundations, the Jewish foundations that, that I, I've worked with, uh, some have bylaws and some have just a, a written situation. There is, there is some donor directivity in it, uh, but very little, I found almost nothing in donor advised funds and nothing in testimon uh, testimonial gifts uh, in, in wills that said, by the way, there's a, there's a group of uh, there's money being left for charity here and I want that charity to go Jewishly at, at, any, at a certain level. And then I've had some really crazy things happen. Uh, one person said, well, I don't trust my kids. So I'm giving it all away where I live, where I'm alive. Then I had one person that said to me, yeah, my two sons are involved Jewishly. My daughter isn't, she's not, didn't. my sons are running my foundation, she's not. So I get involved in some of these family conversations. But, but uh, now uh, that we've been going for a while and have the website going and everything else, uh, there's a lot more interest from Jewish organizations because essentially they look at it as the future. And one of the things that I've said to people is that, you know, you have two eyes and one brain. One eye has to be on today, but one eye has to be on tomorrow. And so consequently, consequently for the organizations, their lifeblood will come from the second generation or the third generation. And what are they doing to protect that? So the pledge, the pledge has gotten has gotten that kind of that kind of stuff and 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 we we, we built some great we, we actually had some strange things happen on the website we 
we've gotten a, a, a Jew from India signed of all things. You know, we're not doing much internationally, but it came in because of the website. We have another one from someplace in Africa. Uh, I mean, so people, there are people that read it and like it. And, and then somebody asks me, uh, how are you going to, how are you going to insist that even if they sign it, it's going to happen? I said, well, that's not my job. I mean, if, if I lose some that go away, that's fine, as long as I get a lot. So we're looking for a lot of signatures. We've gotten most of the major Jewish foundations so far. And, uh, but, that, but I want to get it to people. Well, I've had people say to me, look, I don't have any money. I said, well, but you have children? Yes, I have children. So I said, why don't you just sign the pledge and tell your children that's what you hope for? Make it a moral pledge to have a conversation with your kids. And, uh, and so that's, that's what I'm doing for the rest of my, my time. When you, when you first told me about this, it was before it was fully public. It was actually in Florida. And I, I just jumped off the couch. I, was, I, was, uh, I really believe that this is, you know, we, we keep talking about the, the future of, of, of our Jewish organizations and, 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 and this is it. And that's why I'm gonna be this rabbinic co-chair. It's why I signed it. I really, really believe in it. And, I, I saw your name on the list of people who have taken the pledge. Good job. Yeah, I, I, I just think, and it's gonna benefit the temple, but it's gonna benefit every organization. Well, this is really interesting what you say, Peter, because the, uh, uh, there is one guy, I won't say, who runs a very large Jewish organization. And he said to me, I really wanna own this for my board. I wanna own this for my people. I got a lot of kids for the Jewish Youth Pledge as well as the Jewish Future Pledge. I want to own it. And the reason I want to own it is even if my organization doesn't get the money, I want the Jewish people in the state of Israel to get the money. Yeah. And so, so but, but it just sets up a, uh, so we, we, we're doing some very interesting things. I mean, and I had a long discussion with the AAPI people yesterday. Uh, I'm an AAPI guy. Uh, uh, for those people who don't know what AAPI is, who are listening to me, uh, but but I've been active there for years now, and uh, and they are making it now. Uh, when you when you apply to to become a, a, a brother of AEPI, you have to sign the Jewish Youth Pledge. And there's no money in the Jewish Youth Pledge. It simply says, "I am committed to my generation to to support the state of Israel and the Jewish people." Right. So one person said to me, "Well, gee, you know, what if they don't want to sign?" I said, "They don't want to sign. They shouldn't be a brother. It's a Jewish fraternity for God's right. sake." Gee whiz. And maybe he said, well, what if they don't really understand what it is? I said, let them sign it because you're going to spend three years teaching them other stuff that you're going to do. Um, so, so, I mean, just think about this. They, 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 uh, uh, they pledge 2,500 to 3,000 young men a year. So, if, you know, if you could do that every year for 10 years, it's 30,000 people. Yeah. And so then, then, you know, so you, you, so it's just a matter of making it aware. Like, I think, I mean, what would be wrong if, if every kid who's Barabbat Mitzvah doesn't sign, I'm committed to the future of the Jewish people in the state of Israel. It's just, just, a, just a thing like that. You know, we give them, we give them Sidorim, we give them from the men's club, we give them from the, from, the, from the women's club, we give them all that stuff. But where's the commitment uh, once they finish? Well, we're, we're, we're really grateful for it. So, so um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Mike, I got a call from you. You said, I'm coming over to the temple. I have a present for you. And I'll just say, in, in my almost 25 years as a rabbi, I have a present for you can mean a lot of different things. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you, uh, but you came over and you handed me a book. Yeah. Um, and it was the book that, that you wrote. 
um, uh, about your life, about what matters to you, about these many different jobs in the hospitality industry that you had. And, and, and it was riveting to me to, to watch you uh, uh, pick yourself up, uh, uh, dust yourself off and move on to the next. And, and each time to uh, be in a position of strength and um, to work yourself right up to the top of some of the most important companies in, in, in America, the hospitality industry. And I, I don't want you to give away too much because I want everyone to read it. But what I want to ask you is, um, uh, uh, what what's the most important life lesson that you learned from from a, a, a really distinguished career in the hospitality industry? Well, I, <laughs> as you know, in the book, at the end of every chapter, there's a list of life lessons. This is the yeah. book that says, can't do it yourself, of course, which is the title of the book. And the title of the book says, can't do it yourself, how commitment to others leads to personal prosperity. Uh, and in the back, it says, success is not about money, it's about people. At, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think that's the life lesson itself. And at the end of every chapter, there's actually, there's actually life lessons listed where you have 79 other life lessons. But in general, and in general, no matter what you do, whether you're in, no matter what your profession is, no matter whether you're self-employed or you teach or whatever you do, you, you, nothing, nothing happens by yourself. And, and as a consequence, as a consequence, your ability, your ability to, to work with others, to, 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 uh, to help them to be successful in what they do is the greatest, the greatest thing that you can do. And it goes into charity and everything else. So I, I think for me, the, the, if I said the one single thing, if somebody asked me about my life, leaving family out for a moment, the most important thing is my ability, just by luck, because I never thought about it, is how many people I've been able to touch on the human side. Yeah. Over the course of, of, of 60, well, and February 1st will be 61 years of work, but there was more than that beforehand as a camp counselor and as a and all the rest of the stuff I did beforehand. And, and uh, uh, so I think, and, and, and today, uh, the other day I got a happy new year wish from an executive assistant from Macau. I haven't worked there for six years. Yeah. And, and a woman by the name of Fiona Chan is a lovely lady with three children who, who used to meet us at the plane and do all these things. And, and I sent her back a note and, and I said, thank you so much for remembering me and whatever. And she, and she sent a note back again saying, uh, I just remember how nice you were to me and how you this stuff and that. And so when, you, when you're able to do this, I think that's really the lesson. You, you can get so much energy in your life uh, from, from, from helping other people. And, and it also helps you to achieve whatever success you want. And I, I think there's a rabbinical way of all of this. Yeah, you know, if you really want to think about it, and it doesn't make it you after. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. I mean, you know, you, you, what you don't know, and it's not in the book, is I actually had an application to Hebrew Union College, by the way, at one time. I remember you told me that. Yeah, in our small hotel room. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, somewhere, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I um, uh, that's that to me with the book. One of the most amazing things is that you go back all these years and you recall every name, every interaction that you had with these people. You know, I'm trying to remember what I had for dinner yesterday and the impact you had on all these people. 
is amazing. And I, I know Lauren's got this great question about the work that you, you, you both are doing yeah. together at Temple, but I got to ask you a, a part B real quick first, which is what is one lesson um, that you, that is, that you, what is something from the hospitality business that is applicable to synagogue and nonprofit life? Right. What, what's something that you've learned over the years in the hospitality? Well, well, I think I think this is you're going to find this very strange because I think it's all about the customer. Yeah, it's all about the customer. I mean, you you don't look, you don't say, you don't, you you, you, just, you can stand on a pulpit, on a pulpit, and you can look out, and they're customers. You call them congregants because it's a euphemism for customers. Right. But at the end of the day, the ability to satisfy the needs of your customer. No matter what business you're in, and so many organizations, so many, so many leaders, nonprofits, or so many, so many universities, they don't understand who their customers are. And I learned that in the franchise business also. But the franchisee was my customer, and I made a living from my customers because they helped me be, be successful. So once you understand the customer, look, you, you do it intuitively now. But, but I don't know if you go back to rabbinical school or college or business school or anything, if they really have a course on customer satisfaction and customer awareness and how you identify their needs and respond to those needs, because that's the ultimate strategy for success. You can't do it without customers. And it's just like, you know, you talk about repeat business. If I said, I said, well, how many times do you have a conversation in a nonprofit environment, a show or a temple or whatever, about what's your repeat business ratio? How many people sign up the second time? How many do they sign up the third time? Why do they do it? And then you get somebody that sets, signs up 10 times and you forget to talk to them. You take them for granted. And lots of businesses and organizations take their donors for, for granted, their customers for granted. So for me, for me, it was, in the book, it does talk about some of that, the importance of, of my first sale when I couldn't, uh, uh, the, a person wanted something from the hotel and the hotel turned it down. <laughs> and the person looked at me, you remember this story, Peter, and said, what do you mean you can't do it? I'm the customer. Right. I said, you know, you're right, you're the customer. I went back to the hotel and I figured out a way to get it done. Mm -hmm. So that was, so that, that's, it's the same thing. And I think, I think they, it, it's, it, if you're a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, whatever you are, you, you can't be, you're not alone. You have customers, you have workers, you have people that you deal with every day. And so the importance of other people, it, that it's a, so critical a component of your success. And, and I think you're, you're right that so much of, um, when we think about congregational life, one of the, um, one of the things that we're learning as a Jewish community and that you and I have spoken about is it is not automatic anymore that people will feel an obligation to be a part of a congregation. They have to want to do it in the same way they want to go and be a part, uh, be a customer at a business or another institution. And so I wanted to, to um, spend a little time talking about the Levin Family Jewish Identity Institute at the temple, because one of the signature pieces of this is our way of underwriting the membership dues 
for couples who aren't necessarily young enough to get all of the um, complimentary membership programs that a lot of congregations and the temple offer, which are great, but they are still at a stage where they haven't yet figured out what Judaism means. And so part of our customer service is to say, we wanna take the financial pressure off. We wanna help you get to know us. But this is all part of a big piece of engaging interfaith families in Jewish continuity. So tell us what inspired you to, to make this very generous gift to the temple and to so many of, of the couples that now are able to, to be a part of it? Well, I think, I think the, uh, you, you know, uh, I, I, well, maybe you don't know, I, I don't know exactly, but I'm basically at heart a salesman. I mean, that's how I started. My father was a salesman also uh, at a different time, a different age. But uh, I was thinking about what's happening with the interfaith environment and my own experience, and it's in the book, Peter read it, about my interfaith activities when I was in college and things like that and whatever. Uh, and, uh, uh, but in my generation, uh, interfaith involvement was not very significant. Uh, there was lots of anti-Semitism, lots of other things. And I said to myself, what happens because you're not going to stop it with the integration of Jewish people with other pe people of other faiths and other races, et cetera, and so forth. And you shouldn't stop it, in my view. Uh, and what, what's going to happen from the children's standpoint? What's going to happen to Judaism? Is Judaism going to be all orthodox or is it, or, or, or is it going to integrate? Jews, Jews are in many ways proprietary. They, they, they were not integrated because they were afraid to be for many years. And, and, and so they're not, they weren't really used to it. And, and then I, I said to myself, look, uh, I found out that there's a very heavy amount of interfaith couples in, at the temple. And when they came to me for a pledge for the capital campaign, I said, gee, can I do something in that environment? Because, because I was interested not only in the individual herself or himself, but I was interested in the children. Because if, they, if, they, if we can get a high percentage, I'm not thinking about everybody, but if we can get a high percentage of of interfaith couples who will bring their children up Jewishly, then then uh, we can sustain Judaism, and 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 that's that's my goal. So it was it's it's basically a sales strategy, and I put my money where my mouth was in the temple, and I also support the interfaith uh, now called Eighteen Doors. I don't know how they got that name, but uh, but I used to say the Interfaith Alliance is what it was. I do support them as well. I have supported them as well uh, because I believe in it. And, and uh, I believe in the, the long-term strategy, uh, not, a not a necessarily a conversion strategy, but a youth strategy coming from the couple. Now, some, some organizations work on conversion. I, I, that's not my goal. My goal is the children, if there is. And I feel that if in fact, if in fact the experience that someone has at the temple of a welcoming, accepting experience that maybe they'll think that they have children, they'll bring the children up Jewish also. And and then and, and you have some bumps in the road there too, I don't have to tell you. It's not easy, uh, you know, and you get, you get an African-American, for example, and somebody walks up to them and says, oh, does she work for you as opposed to being a wife? You know, you get those kind of things. Because I mean, it's, 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 a, tran it's a transition in the whole society. And, and to be successful 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the Jews have to do that. And, and, and frankly, my generation never had any training in doing that. And uh, if you happen to read the book, which Peter read, you'll see the training I had in college. 
and uh, uh, but but I was a theater guy, so I you know I was already integrated with everybody, and and uh, you, you judge people on how they acted or how they sang or how they danced or whatever. You didn't you didn't look at them from a from a from a from any different than being you, except mm -hmm. I was a Jew, and and uh, so so it, it it's tough. Tough for my generation to do that, but I think we're making a lot of progress. I think the temple makes a lot of progress, and and I think the movement, if they're making any progress, they, they should be the leadership in this because they talk about that level of, of concern all the time, and I hope they do. Well, Peter, very... my, my my problems about that, but that's a different. <laughs> well, we'll keep that off the podcast. But I do want to, I yeah. you know, I want to say thank you for for um, the endowment gift that that started this institute. We. Um, have done five annual marriage retreats. We are in our second year of membership cohorts. And so um, for anyone who's listening who is an interfaith couple looking for a welcoming congregational home, you can email us and we're, we're happy to get you. You know, I, uh, uh, Lauren, I don't know if you know this, but I have three sons. One's married to a Jewish girl. One's married to a girl whose father was Jewish and mother wasn't. The actual mother's family goes all the way back to the Mayflower. And uh, the third is married to a Korean American mm -hmm. and whose parents said to me when she was marrying my son, I want their children to be Jews, which is kind of nice to begin with. And, uh, and my, my, my daughter-in-law says, says the Shabbos blessing, blessings every Friday night and the, the, the two boys are in Hebrew school and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and uh, uh, so I, I know it firsthand. I mean, I see it firsthand and I see some of the scratchiness that goes on with, with people who don't have that experience. But in my son, my oldest son, uh, whose, whose, whose wife goes back all the way to 1620, the family, uh, she has two sisters. One is a Christian and one is married to a black judge. And we had a Thanksgiving dinner and they were all together. And it was, it was just something so beautiful, so beautiful when we were talking about Thanksgiving and how, how it integrates. And that, that's a vision of the future. But for my son and, and my daughter, those children are all being brought up Jews. And that was, so I saw it firsthand and it can't be done. Yeah. So that's why I do it. This is great. You've given, you've given us like so many sermonic nuggets <laughs> in just one short period of time. So I wanna say thank you. Th thank you for your commitment to Temple and to our interfaith families. Thank you to your commitment to us and to, to being such a, a teacher and mentor to us. Thank you for writing such an incredible book. Thank you for defining the hospitality industry. I mean, Mike, you are a blessing to us all. And uh, I'm so glad our listeners got uh, just a small part of it, but read the book and you'll get a lot more. Yes, information with the Jewish Future website and the book and everything can be found in the description of this podcast episode so you can uh, see the visuals of everything that we've talked about. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Have a Thank great you. day. Thanks All the best. Time. Take care. Bye-bye. Peter, this is not the first time that you and I have heard some of these stories from Mike, but it's always such a pleasure and such an inspiration to hear how he's really built a life of, of learning and Judaism and involvement in philanthropy. It is, and I, I know that uh, our listeners um, will have enjoyed it as much as we have. 
it's there are things that he talked about that you might um, be interested in, other things that you might not even be sure apply to you, but we hope you'll check out the website for the Jewish Future Pledge and also learn about our Levin Institute at the Temple. Next week's episode is actually, we're not going to have a guest. It's the only week of the next eight that we have not um, scheduled an interview because Peter, we've got a whole bunch of questions to catch up on from our listeners. We have um, just some events of the world to process. So we've, we've left ourselves that gift of time to see where the conversation goes. We do. You might be surprised to know that people ask rabbis lots of questions. So we're going to try to answer some of those next week. We've also been equally shocked to find out that people like to hear us talk with one another. So I guess we'll do that too. All right. Well, this has been another episode of The Podcast from The Temple. Where we inspire lives. And transform our world.